you keep that reading uh, close by, you'll find that helpful, I think, just to follow along what I'm saying. We began the series in Exodus last week. And one of the things we said is that the book of Exodus shows God's commitment to fulfill his promises. And that that's one of the things we'll continue to see through this story. This sort of beginning could go one of two ways. And certainly it'll leave you with an impression of me either way. Uh, Nonetheless, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever been at a funeral and heard a eulogy and thought, I didn't know that person? Well, what I mean is, you hear that eulogy and they sound great. You say, that wasn't the person that I knew. I once uh, had to do a funeral for an older, faithful guy, and he had recognized this reality that we just tend to mythologize people. And just because they've dead, simply we forget everything negative they'd ever done, and we reimagine everything they did as being good. And so he said to me in the run-up towards his death, Dom, whatever happens, please don't do that for me. Tell the truth. Speak about Jesus. But I wonder if you've ever been at one of those funerals and you think, I'm just not sure I recognize that mythology. And this is a story where this is very, very different, where you might think that the author would spend a lot of time mythologizing the main character because this is our introduction to our hero. One of the ways that God delivers his people always is to provide a deliverer. And here we are introduced to that deliverer, to Moses. And you might think that that narrative would be really positive, especially considering it's Moses who's writing it. And yet, it does the very opposite of what we tend to do. Because here we find the hero's humanity, his vulnerability, his weakness, his flaws. And this is the hero writing for us. This is the second book of five that Moses writes. It's called the Pentateuch, just means the five. But why is it written in this way, where he shows his humanity, his vulnerability, his weakness, his flaws? Why doesn't he mythologize himself? Well, and here's maybe one of the points to take away, if nothing else, from this morning. Here, our hero, our deliverer, wants us to know he wasn't the hero. God was. God is. God always will be the hero of the story. And that's what we take away, if nothing else, from this morning. So a little recap of some of the context. God had brought the people to Egypt to save them. And now he was going to bring them out of Egypt to save them also. And so Exodus shows us God moving to fulfill his promise to Abraham and the patriarchs. And here's an update on that promise. We'll keep doing this as the weeks go by. Because so much of the rest of scripture is about God working to fulfill this promise. Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. A promise to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's a a promise of a place. And I will make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's a promise of a place but secondly of a people. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a promise for being under God's rule. So where are we by Exodus chapter 2? 
Well, in terms of people, we're looking very good. Exodus chapter 1 showed the way in which the people multiplied and grew and grew in strength. They're expanding and multiplying massively. God is at work amongst them. He's building a people. But what about place? Well, they're still stuck in a foreign land. They don't own it. They don't have any real long-term security or hope of much of a future. And what about rule? Well, the people are not free to serve God. They're serving a tyrant who abuses them, who holds them down, and who scapegoats them. And we found in chapter 1 that the more Pharaoh oppressed Israel for God's blessing, the more that God blessed the people. But that left us with a question, and here's where the story picks up. How will the people of God be freed from Pharaoh to be God's people? And the answer is that God sends a deliverer. So if you've got that reading there in front of you, you can turn to those first 10 verses with me. And what we see here is courage, pity, and cunning. I wonder if you've sort of noticed lately how many of our popular movies are actually origin stories about superheroes. Adam Markowitz, a film critic, reflects on on why that is. He says, we love origin stories because they show the exact moment when a normal guy goes from being just like us to being somehow better, faster, stronger. Well, this is Moses' origin story. And like a superhero story, it tells us much about him. And yet this story is much more about his weakness and how God delivered him. God delivers the deliverer. The legacy of the midwife's bravery that we saw last week is that Moses can be born and can be saved and can be spared. And that tells us something, doesn't it? That you may not always see the legacy always of the stands that we take, but they have a legacy to them. Look at verse 1. Uh, a couple here, a man from the house of Levi and a Levite woman. We get nothing more about them, no names, no real description of what they were about, what they'd done. Nothing remarkable about them. Nothing much to say of them. And that's exactly what the author wants to say. An ordinary pair of parents. And a woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Let's just pause a moment and recognize how hard that is. When we're looking at a story, it's really easy to like, skip over certain sentences, isn't it? And to get to the real sort of events. But that's a very significant thing. To hide a child for three months. Um, the SAS selection process ends with something they call the long drag. It's a 40-mile trek through the hills, the Brecon Beacons, carrying a 55-pound Bergen. Parenting a child often culminates with a long drag, the toughest test known in parenting, and that is staying in a hotel room with a small baby and containing the noise within one room. Or perhaps, if you can't quite afford a hotel, it's at a relative's house and there's relatives next door, so there's your jeopardy if you're not wanting them to wake up all through the night. And only parents will recognize just how torturous that scene was. The cot between the two single beds, the depths that you sink to, 
to try to appease and contain the rage. We've been in Premier Inns where we've had to have all the lights off. It gets harder as you have more kids as well, where the older kids and you, you, you're all lying flat, pitch black, pretending to be asleep to get the younger one to sleep. You're trying to contain the noise there. Then you're trying to get the older ones off to sleep. And it doesn't feel much like a rest at all. It's a long drag. Here they are, having to fight to keep the noise down, to keep this baby hidden. And here's the other thing, even just hiding the child. You can tell who the parents of newborns are just by looking at them. You just take a look at the hair, the eyes, the clothes, and you know. If you've been there, you know. Okay, these are new parents. You see the signs. And so imagine doing this long drag for three months with a healthy child, which I take to be a euphemism. And a rather unhelpful one, as a parent, we think, ah, that's lovely for you to write, but the reality, healthy child, what they mean is strong, loud, <laughs> full of energy. And they hide him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, not surprised, they have to find a way of escape. And so we hear in verse 3, she takes a basket, weaves it together, makes it waterproof, and sets him upon the water. The mum hatches a plan to deliver Moses, which actually relies entirely upon God actually delivering him. And imagine having to do that. Imagine having to entrust your child's entire life entirely to God. And what that might feel like. So the sister stood at a distance, we're told, verse 4, to know what would be done to him. And that's brave, isn't it? Because what she might have watched might not have been very nice. For all she knew. But she watches to see what would happen to Moses. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe. We're told, and now we start to see this is actually a very carefully executed plan. They've known what they were doing. And here's the interesting, all the way so far, by the way, all the characters have been women. And Pharaoh had thought, didn't he, and he said in the last chapter, that if he killed the men, he'd overpower Israel. And yet it's women rising up and undermining him, which is quite interesting and for the time quite unique. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe, and verse 6 tells us she took pity on him. And look at the reasoning for that. She took pity on him. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. That was not an obvious connection to make. When you think about how chapter 1 went and how Pharaoh has been trying to make the whole population complicit in sort of ethnic cleansing of the Hebrews, it is not a natural connection for Pharaoh's daughter to make to see a Hebrew and take pity because they're a Hebrew. That is going against what Pharaoh was pushing. That is very, very brave. That is a very different way of thinking to her father. She took pity on him. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Pharaoh had said, be ruthless with the Hebrews because of their ethnicity. The daughter was saying, and taking pity because of the child's ethnicity. 
And this shows us there are some in Egypt, even if it was only Pharaoh's daughter, but there are some, and even in Pharaoh's house, who are willing to resist and to give mercy to God's people. And there's an interesting thing, isn't there? Because we live in a day of sort of group identity and group politics and all sorts of things like this, where the idea is sort of said, or certainly implied, if not explicitly said, but often explicitly said, everyone in a group must think like this. Everyone in this group must be like this. And this tells us that that's not how people work at all. That there are very often people who stand against, even when that's very costly. The sister now comes and sees this, must have been so relieved and says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And now you start to see the cunning and the planning in this plot. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. There's been pity, but there's great cunning here, isn't there? This was, I imagine, exactly what they had hoped and planned to have happened, but couldn't have possibly dreamt that it would have gone this smoothly. And so Pharaoh's daughter says, nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. And so in God's grace, he also provides for the whole family out of this too. There's pity, there's cunning, but thirdly, there's courage here. There was courage on the part of the mum and the sister to keep this child and to embark on this plan to save his life. And there's courage on the part of Pharaoh's daughter to resist her father's policies of, of ethnic cleansing. When the child grew up, verse 10 tells us, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And in chapter 1, Israel had lost Joseph. And Joseph had, through God's favor and grace, served faithfully in the court of Pharaoh. He had helped save Egypt from calamity, and so he had earned Pharaoh's favor. But then he had died, and Israel had lost that route to favorable treatment. But now, only in chapter 2, here is a glimmer of hope again, because now there is another Hebrew in Pharaoh's court, one who may just be able to help the people. Well, surely that would have been what they would have thought and hoped for. And look at verse 10 there as we finish this section. She named him Moses, because I drew him out of the water. And this is much more significant than it may seem at first, The only person who's named in this story is Moses, because he's the focus of the story. He's the hero. He's the one who matters at this point. But secondly, that name Moses, in the Hebrew, Moshe, sounds like the word for draw out, Masha, in Hebrew. This shows that Pharaoh's daughter was familiar with the Hebrew language. And so perhaps the young women had specifically targeted Pharaoh's daughter. And that may well be why. That she actually has an awareness and sensitivity to the Hebrews, no matter what her father has been saying. She named him Moses. She says, because I drew him out of the water. And so there is courage, there's pity, and there's cunning on display here in these female characters who save God's deliverer. But the point that should be most clear, I hope, is that despite all the odds, God is delivering Israel's deliverer. There's courage, pity and cunning as God delivers his deliverer. 
But secondly there, if you scan your eyes down from verse 11 to 22, we see the making of the man Moses. Verses 1 to 10 give us that sort of birth story, but 11 to 22 is about Moses' formation as a deliverer. And it shows him to be a formidable character. Back to that film critic, uh, Adam Markovitz. He talks about the three sort of common things you see in a hero's origin story. He says they are trauma, finding a destiny, and a chance transformation. We see this in so many of our superheroes. Just take one example, Batman. He has a moment of trauma. He sees his parents killed. He finds his destiny is to fight the same crime in which he'd lost his parents. And then he has a chance transformation. It's seeing a bat that gives him the inspiration for his costume and his persona. Trauma, destiny, and a chance transformation. And we see this in the life of Moses too. Moses saved from the Nile, the very thing that is supposed to kill the young Hebrews, finding a destiny where here he decides that he is Hebrew, not Egyptian. And then a seemingly chance transformation of seeing their oppression, which changes the course of his life. And we get three little snapshots here of of Moses that tell us something of his character. We firstly see him here avenging a Hebrew's death. If you look at verse 11 to 12, you'll see that. When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Actually, Stephen's commentary in Acts 7 is really helpful for us here because it fills in some extra details. It just tells us here when Moses had grown up. Stephen tells us this happened when he was 40. So this is not, you know adolescent sort of Moses this this is him here 14 middle age I suppose we sort of call that that age now don't we and he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and there's something significant in that statement isn't there he went out to his people he's grown up in the palace but he knows he doesn't belong in the palace Moses has found his destiny and I'm sure he'd heard the propaganda against the Hebrews, because he's grown up being taught their culture. Again, Acts 7, uh, Stephen tells us here, verse 22, that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And yet, Moses knows in his heart where he's from, and he has made his choice already. And the book of Hebrews helps us with this too. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 onwards tells us, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What Moses is recognizing and deciding here is that I would rather sacrifice the personal comfort of remaining Egyptian and being in Pharaoh's court to be part of the people of God and suffer. I would rather Pharaoh, the power of the world, abuse me for obeying God than face God's wrath for obeying Pharaoh. He's found his destiny. He goes out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, reminds us again, one of his people. And look at how Moses responds. Verse 12. He struck down the Egyptian 
and hid him in the sand after having looked to check there were no witnesses. And that leaves us with a little question mark, doesn't it? Because was Moses right to do that? Again, Stephen's commentary in Acts 7 helps us. Verse 24. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. I don't think this is murder. The story here stops short of telling us and commentating. Stephen seems to put it in more positive terms. Think about it. What should Moses have done? Should he have watched it pan out? You know how it's going to pan out. Should he have lodged a complaint? Sent an email to HR? Moses sacrifices his potential sense of self-righteousness for not doing something bad to do it to save someone else. And he sees it as God giving a chance to offer God's salvation through his hands. And yet he's not been appointed to that yet. But again, Stephen tells us, chapter 7, verse 25, about he supposed his brothers would understand God was, saving, was giving them salvation sorry, by his hand. But the story leaves off telling us outright, whether it was right or wrong, it just tells us shows him to be formidable it shows him to have no tolerance for injustice Moses avenges a Hebrew's death but then he breaks up a fight between Hebrews look at verse 13 to 15 two Hebrews were struggling together and he says to them why do you strike your companion and look at their answer to him who made you a prince and a judge over us do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian and there's Stephen's commentary, isn't it? That Moses supposed they'd realize that God was granting them salvation through his hand, but he tells us they didn't. They didn't understand that. And here's a dig at Moses. I hope you see it. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? You may be their prince, Moses. You may be son of Pharaoh's daughter. You may be a judge and a ruler of them. But you're not a judge over us. Who made you judge and prince over us? And just listen to that. Here is Moses finding his destiny, and that's all wrapped up in believing that he's a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. And here are Hebrews disowning him. Who made you a judge over us? And when Pharaoh heard, tells us he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled. And you can imagine the sort of anger that Pharaoh would have had. He's given this order that all of the Hebrew uh, male children be killed, be thrown into the Nile and drown. His daughter has kept Moses. And now Moses, this son who she kept, when as far as he's concerned, she shouldn't have now goes and kills an Egyptian. This is, by the way, fulfilling the very sort of trope that he'd popularized back in chapter 1, verse 10, that the Hebrews are going to turn on us and kill us. Sadly, it is sort of fulfilled that. And maybe that's why 
his brothers aren't so happy with what Moses had done. Maybe they worry. This is just going to make our life harder. You've just made things worse for us here. And so Moses fled. Moses was capable of great bravery and fear. He's not only and he's not always strong, just like us. Moses fled and he stayed in Midian. And I've hopefully got a picture of a map here so you can get an idea of of roughly where that is. Ah, there you are. You sort of see the distance. Egypt up in the top left corner and Midian down towards the, the bottom right corner. Gets about as far away probably as he sort of could. And if he didn't feel as though he belonged before, he really doesn't belong now. Living as an exile out in Midian. And the deliverer that God had raised up is now on the run in another country and wanted dead by Pharaoh. We see him avenge a Hebrew's death. We see him break up that fight between Hebrews. And then the third story is Moses delivering some women from some shepherds. Here about the priest of Midian having seven daughters and they go out to water his flocks. No doubt he's not able to do that work because he's caught up with that priestly work. And so the daughters are are forced into doing that for him. And these shepherds come and drove them away. And Moses stood up and saved them, verse 17 tells us. He's resisted the shepherds who outnumbered him, by the way. And again, he's seen bullying of someone in power, abusing those not. And he stood up and he's taken action. And so Moses proves himself as someone who fights for the oppressed, no matter the personal cost. And there's a reality here, that this ability, on a personal and an individual level, to resist evil, always actually protects all of society, not just you. And notice how Moses is spending that capital every time, not to protect himself, but to protect others. Jordan Peterson reflects on this idea. He says, the willingness of the individual to stand up for him or herself protects everyone from the corruption of society. Think about whether Moses was right or wrong to intervene. There is sometimes a bigger cost in not resisting and not fighting the fight that needs to be had than to fight it, even if you might come out of it worse for wear. There is a cost to inactivity. Moses, on the other hand, is a man of action, for better or for worse. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And know that, that not only does he save them from these mean shepherds, but he does the work for them. He waters the flock so that they wouldn't have to. And so the father, when the daughters come home early, says, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they tell him, and look at this, verse 18, an Egyptian delivered us. And notice that again. The whole part of this section of the story here is Moses finding his identity, that he is Hebrew, not Egyptian. He's rejecting that Egyptian identity and saying, no, I'm I'm a Hebrew and those are my people and and those are the people that I'm going to live with and I'm going to fight for. He's been rejected by other Hebrews who say, well, who's, who's made you, prince and ruler over us? And now look, 
he's being seen not just by other Hebrews, but others too, as Egyptian, despite seeing himself as Hebrew. And look at that conflict. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, verse 21 tells us, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and he gave birth to a son, and they called his name Gershom. As he said, I've been a sojourner, a traveller, a wanderer, that is, in a foreign land. And again, Stephen's commentary in Acts 7 helps us, Acts 7 verse 30, that when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared. He is an exile in Midian for 40 years before chapter 3 occurs. That is, at the moment that he's kind of appointed by God to be a deliverer, he's 80. And a lot of his life seems to have passed him by. Here he is, 40 years in exile, going nowhere. Moses has tried to play redeemer in his own wisdom and in his own strength, and it's resulted in him living as an exile in a foreign land. And it tells us that, you know, no one can bring God's deliverance, no one can really do God's work until God has anointed them with his power and his calling. Moses has stepped out and tried, and he's had every good intention, but it's not worked out very well. And so we're left on a weird note. The hero's introduced, but he seems to be washed up already. And so the question we're left to answer is, what will God do? And here's the heart now of this passage here, this final section. The God who keeps his promise. And if you look to verse 23 to 25, here's the heart of this whole chapter. We've seen that courage and pity and cunning, the making of the man Moses. But now the author turns to God. During those many days, verse 23 tells us, that is another 40 years. And that's a long time, isn't it? That is a long time to have to wait for God to rescue them. And that presents us a challenging reality that God is sovereign. We'll see that throughout the course of this story. But he doesn't spend his sovereignty on keeping you comfortable. That's not priority, number one. God is sovereign, but he doesn't always spend that sovereignty on keeping you comfortable. And it forces us to ask a little question. Can we even appreciate what God offers us if we've never tasted life without it? If we don't at some point go through the moment of actually experiencing lack and need? Sometimes suffering serves a good purpose. We thought last week of Nietzsche's reflection on the constant sort of blessing of the people of Israel, of Jewish people, and yet also the affliction that they have tended to face. And he said their energy and higher intelligence, their accumulated capital of spirit and will gathered from generation to generation through a long schooling in suffering must become so preponderant as to arouse mass envy and hatred. His point in part there, I think, is to say that the fact that they have faced so much challenge and adversity has strengthened them in a way that they continue to prosper. There is a good purpose to suffering. Romans 8 reflects on this same idea. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All things, even bad things, even sad things, even things that you wouldn't choose, work together for good. And the good that they work together for is the second half of that. 
sentence that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Suffering has a way of refining and renewing and redeeming us into Christ's image. And so there's practical realities to this too for everyday life, for parenting. We will fail our children if we never allow them to face adversity. How will they grow independence and strength if they don't know what to do when they don't know what to do? Because they haven't had to face that. And they've been so cushioned and comforted from things, they're really not equipped to face the world. There is a useful neglect. There is a useful element of allowing children to discover and to work through adversity and challenge. And God is a much better father than us. The king of Egypt died, verse 23. And surely they must have hoped, well, here may be a hope for us. Maybe we'll get a better pharaoh now. And yet they didn't. One, I'm sure, of many false dawns. The king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And there's that moment of just desperation, isn't it? We have no other hope. We've exhausted our own strength. We've spent our resources. And the cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And the cry went up rather than God coming down. And that tells me a really obvious thing, but that was a big cry. And the fortunes of Israel, though, didn't rest on Moses coming to terms with the oppression of the Hebrews, as we saw in the last section of the story, but that God saw, and look how it ends there in verse 24 and 25, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And this is a key passage for the, for the whole book that will make sense of who God is and what he's doing. He heard and he saw. He's living. He has senses. He's not ignorant. He's aware of what they face. He heard. He saw. But he knew, verse 25, and that's more than information. That is, he understands. He feels it. He knows. He gets it. He heard. He saw. He knew. But he remembered his covenant. And the weather is it's not just remembered as in I remember it's a thing like I remember I have a meeting, hopefully. It's he kept it. He fulfilled it. This triggers God to remember and to keep his promise to Abraham. His commitment to keep his promise and to be faithful drives and produces his love. And there's an example from everyday life that might help us to explain this a little. The closest human relationship we can have is, is marriage, isn't it? A marriage, we're told, represents God's love for us. We know that because Ephesians 5 verse 32 tells us it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, writing in prison to a couple about to get married, reflecting on it, trying to give them some good advice. He says at one point, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. What does he mean? He means the promise to keep promise 
drives and defines and produces love, not the other way around. I don't stay faithful if I feel like loving. I love the other person because I've promised to be faithful. God loves us with a covenant-keeping love that won't grow tired, that won't give up, that won't walk out on us. And that covenant-keeping leads to great emotions too. In fact, the covenant-keeping produces love, produces a costly and a lasting and a meaningful love in the moments that are most hard, where there's not lots of emotions flying around maybe. It produces those feelings. And the fact that God's love is based on covenant keeping, not emotion primarily, makes it secure and not subject to change. It makes it reliable. It means that you can trust in it. You can count on it. You can bank on it. It's not going anywhere because it's not related to what you do or don't do. It's related to who he is and the fact that he remains committed to remain committed. It's wonderfully freeing. And marriage is to be a reflection of that. And this is what God is like here. And this is what it's saying. That he's remembered his promise. And he'll continue to remember it. And for all the things that will happen. That's maybe the key takeaway. That God is the God who keeps his promises. The true hero is God who sends Moses to deliver the people for him. In order to keep his promise. Where do we come as we try and land this? Well, Moses thought that by standing up and fighting back, he could deliver the people by his hand. But God has a better plan. He was going to deliver his people by his hand, so it was clear that he did it. Because the ultimate deliverer that God would send would be Jesus. And Jesus didn't deliver through violence. There was no saving even Jesus the deliverer from the forces of evil, like Moses has to be saved and spared here and delivered. Instead, Jesus the deliverer delivered us by being delivered over to evil and dying for us. Jesus himself reflects on this in the days ahead of his death. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 20, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying, he'll say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you delivered me over to the forces of evil and not delivered me? And that seems like an accusation, but what Jesus is doing is quoting Psalm 22, where God's servant cries in anguish, asking for deliverance from God. And so Jesus, the deliverer, cries out to his father for deliverance. And yet, here's a few verses later in Psalm 22. Because it begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But listen to how it begins to end, verse 21 onwards. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted 
or the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Jesus knows what it was, just as the people did here, just as we do too, to cry out to God. And God hears Jesus. God sees him. God doesn't abandon his deliverer, and that is good news for us because it means we can be delivered. Romans chapter 4, verse 24 to 25. It, righteousness, right standing with God, a favor from him, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We've thought at the beginning of Exodus that Exodus is about how God delivers us from struggles and suffering and strife and sin that is outside but also that is inside within us. God is the hero and he sees, he hears, he understands our suffering and our shame. And he is faithful to deliver us by delivering his son over to death that we might be delivered to life. The message of Exodus 2 is that God is the hero. It's a hero story where the hero isn't really the hero. And then the real hero breaks through the curtain. God is the hero. God is the deliverer. And so this morning, I wonder what it is you maybe need deliverance from. Whatever it may be, turn your eyes and your heart to Jesus, the deliverer. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look to Jesus. Let's pray and then in a few moments we'll sing a closing song together. Father, I think we maybe often have been in Moses' place and had all the 